What's going on, everybody? Hey. My name is George Khalife. This is episode 12 of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm here with the main man, Alan Smithson. What's up? <laughs> He's the, honestly, like, look, there's a bunch of stuff I'm going to cover. He's a VA. He's a virtual reality, augmented reality expert, right? CEO of Metaverse. He's done a bunch of things. I think first, uh, he's a father. He loves the dad job. As much My favorite as job in the world. Favorite job in the world. And yeah. right behind us, you can see Meet the World's youngest CEO. Uh, his daughter actually uh, started this company called Love Sandal. Super, super cool company. She's tw- top 20 under 20 at age 9, age 10. 10. Yeah, when she was 10. So it's, it's actually phenomenal. It's, it's a family of entrepreneurs. Um, he's an inventor, investor, entrepreneur, and futurist. So Metaverse, if you guys don't know, is a consulting company that I think North America's leading consulting company yeah. in the VR space. Super cool. But they're actually also uh, inventors in space as well. They have uh, the world's first VR photo booth, yeah. right? So I think that that's really cool. I'm going to have all the links, by the way, uh, below so you can check out all the videos. Um, before this, though, you were a DJ, right? I've been a DJ for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. 20 years. And you created the first uh, multi-touch uh, DJ set. Yep. Again, like something you guys would have never ex- expected. It's like a glass plane. Google all-season. emulator DJ. Emulator DJ. Yeah. So, so look, a ton of stuff I can cover. I'm going to let you do the storytelling sure. here. But just tell us about yourself and how you got started, Alan. So uh, my name is Alan Smithson. I'm currently the CEO of Metaverse. And before that, uh, I'll go back quite a bit. I started DJing when I was uh, about 18. Mm. And I started DJing in high school, but then really got serious about it in university. And uh, one night I was, I was a bouncer at the nightclub. And I was not very good. I'm not a very big guy. <laughs> and the DJ didn't show up one night. And they said, hey, does anybody know how to make these turntables work? And like we had, they had the turntables, they had the CDs, they had everything there. I was like, hell yeah. So I went and DJed, <laughs> killed it. I ended up getting the gig. So I was the DJ for Thursday nights at the pub. Friday nights, uh, I did like an 80s night, 80s mm-hmm. ladies night. Nice. And then Saturday nights, I was at the club. And I lived with two DJs. And one DJ was kind of the hype man. He was that like, you know, get everybody riled up. Couldn't mix with the shit, like literally couldn't mix two songs together, but he just knew what songs to play when and, yeah. and how to get the crowd hyped. The other DJ was methodical. He was like the perfect mixing. So I learned the hype part and the mixing in, you know, by living with these guys and I would just practice all the time. We, one Christmas, we brought home all the speakers from the club. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking club speakers <laughs> in our house and we had a party and it was crazy. We literally had club speakers in our house. Things were, you know, breaking all over the house and, Project it was that the police came to the door. They ended up coming in the house because, like, you know, there was no way we could hear them. And they came in and they're like, "Hey, you know, you guys got to turn this down. We could hear it eleven blocks away." <laughs> so, I mean, that that was fun, and uh, I actually ended up. Whoops, I ended up doing. Um, I did a wedding in university. Okay. And you know, I was DJing Thursday, Friday, Saturday night till like three in the morning, and then going to class in the mornings. Um, and then all of a sudden, I did DJ this wedding, and it was amazing. And I was like. I was finished by one. I got to go back to the club and make last call. Mm-hmm. And I got paid five times more than I did in the club. And I was like, what? Wait a second. It was easier. I got fed. <laughs> I got home early. I could still go to the club. And I got paid five times as much. So yeah. I was like, this is no brainer. I'm going to do this. So I, I started doing weddings with just people that were getting married at a university. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't even, I don't think I had a website. It was just a business card. And, you know, I had a pager at the time. That's OG. Um, <laughs> I'm a millennial, man. You can't tell me these things. Dude, I had a pager. It was a thing, man. Oh, my God. I literally had a pager. So, yeah, we, we had this uh, DJ company, and we called Star Productions, and yeah. we grew the DJ company, and uh, we grew it to 19 DJs, and we were doing you know upwards of 
little shy of a million a year uh, wow. with the DJ company, and we started doing AV stuff, and that was like kind of over the course of a. a and you decade. wrote this book, got to show it, DJ Profits. Yeah. So the business on how to actually become a successful DJ. Yeah. Uh, we took a little bit, you know, things from the from the the kind of corporate and wedding world. So I ended up doing a lot of the weddings, and then. From the weddings, I, I realized that the corporate gigs were really starting to come in because you know mm -hmm. people getting wedding, getting married, they work somewhere. So we did starting Christmas parties, and then we started doing a lot more corporate work. And then the great thing uh, was we got to start doing these you know, like tech events and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I saw this big see-through touchscreen thing on a YouTube video. My buddy forwarded it to me, and it had like three thousand views or something like that. And I was like, "That is awesome!" <laughs> that video ended up changing my life because I went to buy it and I realized you couldn't buy this, this touchscreen. And so I went everywhere in the world, the guitar center, I went, Oh, you know, UK, us, I looked everywhere. Nobody had this thing. And I was like, well, this thing is revolutionary. What the heck is it? And how come I can't buy it? Anyway, I found the guy who created the software, Pablo Martin. Hey Pablo, if you're watching, um, he's a genius coder and DJ in Argentina. And we wow. said, Hey, we'll make a deal. I'll take care of the hardware side and he'll take care of the software side. We built the emulator together. Wow. And so we, we built it. We never met. We still have not met to this day. What the heck, man? Get on a plane and fly up here and see me. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so we, we ran this whole company for about five years. And, I mean, it was hard because this was before I knew anything about startups. I didn't know, like, I didn't know how to run a scalable tech business. I didn't know that you could raise money for things like this. I didn't understand that world. I just... You just use your self potential on it. Yeah, just that's insane. I took a bank loan and you know worked hard. How are you in the position though? Like when you, I just I, I got to stop on this point because yeah. you're like, look, I saw something revolutionary. I saw something I loved. I couldn't buy it, so, so I'm gonna create it. it. Yeah. How do you have that mindset? Like, where does that come from? Is it natural? Did you? Uh, okay, so while I was out of university, I finished with a degree in molecular biology, okay. and I got a job as a pharmaceutical rep. It was like. Wow. The best job I could get where I didn't have to go to an office every day because I did that for three months. I was like, this is not for me. I can't handle this. Ah, I, did, I did software sales where I had to go in every single day. And it was like 9 a.m. you start. You're at your desk from 9 to 10.15. At 10.15, you have a coffee break for 15 minutes. At 10.30, you go back to your desk. You work till 12. 12 to 1 is lunch. And then it was like a robot. Ah, I hated this. So the whole time I was there, I looked for the job. Sorry, guys. Yeah, from a simple job, which is amazing. Like, here's your card, keys, here's a computer, here's your list of doctors, go. And then, they, you know, they train you. And um, so I went out there and I, I just hustled. Like, you know, I had something to prove. I, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. You know, there's no real, like, guide for that. It was just like, here's your keys, here's your computer, go. And so I just hustled. I worked 12, 15-hour days every single day, and I saw as many doctors as possible, and my sales started going up and up and up, mm. and I ended up being the number one salesperson in the company for like three years. Wow. Um, it was really good. Man. My sales were off the charts, and I ended up taking on a second territory, so now I have double the sales of everybody else, and they're both growing, and, and I remember my last year in pharmaceuticals, I, I made my entire year target by June 15th. Jeez. So what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm young, I'm 24 years old or something, 23 years old. I've got an attitude. I'm really good at what I do. I went into my boss and said, hey, let's go reset my target. Let's, and they wouldn't. And it was like, it was this, it was this depressing moment. Like, well, why the hell would I go to work? I already did what you told me to do. Yeah. Here, here's the results. It's done. Now what? And so they weren't willing to reset it. And at the very same time, I went on vacation and I bought a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, which, hold on, I think I have the original yeah, yeah. one. 
I think it is. Oh, there you go. Look at My those guys. Bookshelf is over there. The original one. <laughs> Rich That's Dad, old copy, man. Yeah, this is OG. Like vintage. This is OG. OG. Still has the bookmark inside. I love oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so actually, this may not even be one because the one I had was beat up. Anyway, so I read that book, and the fundamental difference that I learned in that book here, I turn a bit. Yeah. Uh, the fundamental difference that I learned in that book was the difference between being an employee and, an, and, a, and a business owner yeah. is just, is, if you break it down to everything else, just the tax structure. So you pay, you get paid mm. as an employee, you get paid $100,000. 50% goes to the government, then you're left with whatever money you spend your money on that. Mm. So as a business owner, you make $100,000, you pay all your bills, then you're taxed on what's left. Mm. And you're taxed only at 20%. So instead of being taxed before you spend, you're taxed after you spend. So that fundamental difference was the key to make me go, oh my God, this is, makes no sense to work for somebody else. You can never get ahead. Mm -hmm. So I started my first company, which was the Canadian Prepaid Medical Plan. And it was a block fee program for doctors because I was calling the doctors and I saw a problem. Doctors uh, are allowed to bill OHIP and, and uh, provincial formularies for all sorts of things like visits and you know everything, x-rays. Um, but they're not allowed to bill for things like uh, notes and forms and insurance, you know, physicals and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So we created a, an automated process for that where they could bill ahead of time for that. And uh, it's funny because I was, you know, I was in the, uh, the Toronto Star one week and it was like, you know, is this the, the wonder kid of the medical system? And then I remember doing another interview after that one came out because it, it got out a lot of traction and I got a lot of phone calls, did a lot of interviews. Then the next week I did an interview, didn't think much of it. I was just answering the guy's questions. Article comes out the next Saturday and it was, right. is this guy the gadfly of <laughs> Medicare? And I'm like, what, what is a gad? what's a gadfly? I don't even know what that is. So I look it up. It turns, it turns out it's a fly that flies on shit. So that's not good. Mm. So I learned very quickly the power of media mm. and, uh, and uh, how they can, you know, one minute be twisted. Yeah. One minute be on your side and then not. So I, I learned really quickly not to do media interviews unless I've read previous stuff from that person. Very good lesson. If you're an entrepreneur, whoever wants to interview you read their previous work because there's some, uh, there's some writers, uh, especially for, you know, like uh, newspapers and stuff like that, that are just out there to make a negative, the, make a negative story because you know, that stuff sells. So right. anyway, um, long story short, I, I worked on that company for a couple of years and I ended up just not liking it and kind of went back to my DJ business that I was doing on the weekends. I was making more money on the weekends than I was making doing all of this stuff. And even on, when I was farmer rep, I was still DJing and, you know, I ended up doing that and went back to DJing full time. And so I was DJing full time. Um, you know, full time for me, it was like a couple of days a week. So mm -hmm. I was, I had a pretty, pretty awesome life. That sounds like a good life. Man. And then uh, we bought some property in Guelph with a partner of mine, and uh, we bought some rental properties, and we were doing well. And you imagine like being 26 years old, having lots of money, we paid for our house, and it was really amazing. And all of our investments were going up. This was, you know, the time when things were really, really going up. 20, you know, 2005, 6, 7, 8. And then 2008 hit, and, uh, you know, that, that was a – a real wake-up call for us. We, we lost some big key clients and accounts and people started, stopped throwing parties and events and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So we, we struggled through that part. And then in 2010, I saw the emulator. And I was like, that's it. I want to do that. And so I took my investments that I'd made from, from Star Productions and I 
invested it into uh, emulator and built it as a global brand, traveled all over the world and promoting it. Again, I got to, I made a list in 2009 of all the places I want to DJ right. around the world, Ibiza. I wanted to play in the box at um, Ministry of Sound. Wow. I wanted to play in Dubai. I wanted to play in Russia. I, wanted, like, I made a list and I did none of them in 2009. Really? Or sorry, 2010, I, zero. Like I checked zero off the list. And I can tell you when you make goal lists, it's really depressing when you don't get them. Ticked off, yeah. But having that list shining in front of you was literally like a two-page list sitting glued to my desk every day. And I don't know, some sort of subliminal thing that hits you. Uh, 2010, I got to play in Dubai. Mm. Then I got to play in the box. And I, like every single one got checked off the list. And it was like 2011, and we held our own festival. Right. So we did all the things that were on that list. It just, it just got delayed by a year. So whenever you're making like a, a to-do list or a you know, your kind of dream list. It's great to have timelines and deadlines around it, but don't beat yourself up if you don't hit those deadlines, because that was one thing that I learned really, really uh, impactful for me was, you know, these timelines are artificial. So for example, I, what I'm working on now uh, in metaverse, you know, it's taken us, I started working on this two and a half years ago. And when we started working in VR, we just we would go to every single agency. We went to every single company. We would do boardroom meetings, and this is a time two years ago when nobody even knew what VR was. Still new, yeah. And so even now, it's it's still new. But I would just keep persisting, you know, you know, every day. And people think, oh, if I get on Oprah, I will be <laughs> successful, or if I get on TV, I'll be successful. I can tell you, I've been on TV a lot. I've been on all sorts of different shows. I've been on stages with you know people like Gary Vee and all different people. It's never one thing. It's the consistency every mm. single day that you get up and you work towards it every day. Right. Make a list of all the things you want to do, and you'll eventually get through the list. It's amazing. How did how did you you know go from all these different sort of ventures? <clears throat> I know DJing was always a sort of a, a part of your life, and that's how you got started entrepreneurially. I even have a tattoo of the edge of a turntable. See, I, I have the it. old logo of the emulator, <laughs> and then that that is forty five adapter. That's commitment. I love it. <laughs> so I, we, uh, I told my partner the first million dollar deal we, we signed for emulator I'm, or for metaverse, I'm going to get the metaverse logo, this thing here tattooed. Where would you get it done? I don't know yet. It's probably right. going to be very small. Maybe with my, no I've, face tattoo. I've got a Pac-Man here. <laughs> <laughs> that one there was from Vegas. A full face tattoo. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love it. Right above my eyes. <laughs> but how do, you, how do you get into a space, man, that's, that's still so fresh. It's very untapped. So I was very lucky. So, uh, a couple of years ago, and I, I say lucky, it was awful. Um, I brought on an investor. We were, we were running out of money, and we had about a three-month window. Uh, and I said, we're going to raise money. We're going to raise a million dollars. We need to grow this company. Yeah. Couldn't raise it. We raised a million dollars. We got people to sign off on it. We're like, this is amazing. We did a pitch night. Guys like, yeah, we'll take the whole million. We want in. And I was like, done. Done deal. We went through you know a month, two months of due diligence. And it turns out they didn't have the money, which is – I didn't even think that was an option. Like I, I didn't even think to ask them, by the way, do you have the money? <laughs> so, uh, so that was a lesson learned in raising money, but, um, that one really sucked because now we're, now we're like a month and a half runway. We're running out of money. And then we found another investor for a million and then those guys just disappear. It was just the worst thing because we're here in Toronto. Toronto doesn't invest in, in these types of things, especially back in, you know, we're talking 2000, uh, 14, 15, like 13, 14, 15 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so we found this investor in Miami and we had a bad feeling about him. Mm-hmm. And my, my CFO and my lawyer at the time, they're like, look, if you take an investment with this guy, we're out, we're, we quit. 
And meanwhile, I'm looking at the bank account and we we're down to zero. We're running out of money. It was the only option we had and we took it. And it turns out they were right. I was wrong. And this guy totally scammed the company and stole the IP. And now it's under a company called Touch Innovations, which is illegally using our patents and trademarks. And anyway, good for you. <laughs> but I went through uh, the most hellish year of my life. It was awful. This guy moved our office to Miami. So now I'm living in Miami back and forth all the time, trying to get these things done. And he's sabotaging every step of the way. Ooh, was loud. <laughs> he's sabotaging everything, every step of the way. It's like, yeah. don't ship by FedEx because they break it. Ships it by FedEx, they break it. We're talking $15,000 products here. Wow. So they break it. I'm like, okay, well, we learned a lesson. We're not going to ship by FedEx, right? Four more. Oh, man. So I'm like, what are you, why? I don't understand <laughs> what is the purpose of burning through cash like this it doesn't make any sense and everything we said to do this you would do the opposite anyway so right or wrong we lost that company and it's funny i saw the writing on the wall and i knew it was coming the board uh, he convinced the board to to vote against me and uh kick me out of my company mm. but prior to that about three months prior to that i got to go to curiosity camp which was this little camp in the california hills okay and it was put on by Eric Schmidt from Google. Wow. And it was uh, a camp for about 150 people. And it was tech entrepreneurs, tech investors, and uh, the tech community in Silicon Valley. Okay. Going to this beautiful campground with no Wi-Fi, no cell service. You can imagine a bunch of tech people with no cell phones. <laughs> people freaking out. <laughs> and then there was these tents. But you go into the tents, and they were like semi-permanent tents. You go in, and there was beautiful, beautiful mattresses with cow prints, like yeah. carpets. It was just like clamping at its <laughs> finest. So we got there and there was, um, it was amazing. And there was this, you know, Boy Scout leaders dressed up and they're like, here's your notepad and your tin cup and your pencil and your sash, you know, with your badges. And then they filled the cup with champagne. So it was like, oh my God, this (laughs) is It was gourmet food, drinks, whatever. And so you're with these incredibly smart people. And I remember one guy, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Alan. I do this and I make this emulator thing. And what do you do? And he goes, oh, I work for Bing. And I was like, oh, wow. Oh, like Microsoft thing? And he's like, yeah. I said, oh, do people still use that? Like, is that a thing? <laughs> and I remember today, he looks at me, he goes, I invented Bing. I was like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> I take my foot out of my mouth. What? I love Bing. What do you yeah, think? Bing's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, that was like one of those moments. I was like, oh, shit. Anyways, <laughs> Stefan. Sorry, dude. Um, we became friends. but uh, I hope all these guys actually walked. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll send it to them. Look to them. Anyway, I got to, uh, got to try this. Uh, oh, anyway, I was DJing there. So I had okay. my emulator and I DJed for them. And it was, yeah. it was awesome. So you can imagine this, this camp. I got to, it was the first time I ever got to see a, a drone, too. Like fly oh, a drone. Wow. And this was in, I want to say 2013. Okay, still early days. Early. No, right. 2014. It was 2014 or 15 okay. or something. 14, 2014, because it was really early, and we got to, I got to fly a drone, and I mean, this was like one of the first, I think, DJI one, and we're flying it, and I can just remember looking at the screen going, oh my God, like, that view where you just see that the earth getting smaller, 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 and now you can see everything, and I remember thinking, man, this is, this is the future, we actually almost started a company called uh, Skylux to do um, luxury properties uh, using wow. drones, and then we realized that, like, it's, it's mad. It's just too many people can do it. I mean, there was no regulations. We we were going kind of the full regulation route, and okay. anybody with a drone could do it. There was no regulations at the time, so I was like, "Yeah, this is not the business we want to get into." But um, but I got to try VR. Mm. There was this little tent, and there was all tents with different art exhibits and different things. And this okay. one tent, and I remember I was sitting down with this guy. I never met him before, 
And uh, he was showing me videos while we were waiting for this, the thing. And he was showing me videos of him uh, and Skrillex at Coachella the week before. Oh, okay. And so we're talking <laughs> about Skrillex. We're talking about DJs. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, I've been to Electric, music, electric uh, Daisy Carnival. We're talking yeah. about festivals. <laughs> so he goes and he tries this VR headset. And he puts it on. his big headphones and everything. And puts this headset on. And he get, cuts out. And he goes, oh, my God. That was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. you got to try it. All right. So I go and try it. Put it on that. And I was in the crowd looking down. This is my first time I ever tried VR. Put it on my head, put on the headphones, and it's spatial sound. So now I'm like, I'm there. I'm totally there. Immersed. I'm looking down. There's a stage down there, and I'm in the crowd. I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. I can watch a concert from anywhere. And I look, and the guy's like, you know, and same with everybody in VR. You put them in VR for the first time, they just stand there and look at it like this. I'm like, wow, this is cool. And then all of a sudden, the guy's like, turns me around. <gasps> you know that moment where you're like, oh my God, it's all around me. <laughs> ah, what do you mean? It's magic. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And I remember thinking, oh, this is cool. And then he goes, no, no, no. He gets better. He hits a button. And now I'm on stage standing next to Beck. Beck oh is like God. this far away singing. And I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> and I'm looking at the crowds here and the crowds here. Ah, I was in a round. And so I was in the middle of the round looking out at the crowd. And uh, that experience was, uh, was put on by a guy named Chris Milk. Mm. who now is like he's world renowned he's done uh, he did the first 360 video with U2 and like wow. just amazing he's got a company called Within and another company called Here Be Dragons and they're like production for high end cinematic VR um, but Chris Milk showed me VR for the first time and the guy who went before me is a guy called uh, Robert Scoble mm. and Robert and I have since become friends he's um, he's all in VR now too he's got a company called Fourth Transformation and he just wrote a book uh, called The Force Fourth Transformation and his company's Transformation Group. So we've partnered with those guys as well. But that was the fateful night where we both tried VR. And you can't BS it too because, I mean, you were a DJ. So having, you know, put them on and actually experiencing that situation, like you can tell. I've been on stage my whole life. So I've been, I've been on those festival stages. I mean. I've been out looking at it. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, like nobody gets this opportunity. It's, unless you're playing yeah. on stage, you are not standing on the front of the stage looking out. Very rarely. Like, yeah. you know, very rarely do they have people on stage. And so the next thing I saw, you know, I was like, okay, I love this VR thing. I'm going to do this. And that was early days. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm, that's my next company. I'm going to do VR. Did you know what you were going to do or just no. that you like I was like, like I don't know okay. anything about this tech. So I started reading about it, learning about See, it. And cool. then when I got fired from my company, the next day I started my next company. Mm. And the next company was called Shock Creative. And uh, it was kind of a shock and awe. That was our thing. We were going to create shock and awe using VR. Okay. Um, and I partnered with a really amazing artist and, uh, he was really great at, um, bringing, you know, bringing projects together. He was 3d mapping and augmented reality and stuff like that. He did the first augmented reality things like five, six years ago right. for Ubisoft for a video game launch. And I mean, just wow. a super talented guy, but I wanted to work in the business of VR. Like how do we use this for business? And he wanted to make art. And so we, we kind of, we had different philosophies on that. Ended up meeting my new, my now partner, Dan, uh, at a VR meetup. And so this was thing, you know, my previous company, Shock Creative, we were just kind of like, we're on the outs for the, this is not going to work. So I ended up buying that company out and selling it into Metaverse. And so Metaverse was formed. And Dan says to me, he goes, so, um, you know, I'm working with this partner, but I don't think it's working out. I said, I'm doing the same. Let's get together and have, you know, and we got our families together to see if, you know, the families were compatible and they were. And then he said, what do you think of the name Metaverse? And I was like, you mean like the world you're in when you're in VR, like yeah. the metaverse? He goes, yeah, but it's spelled V-R-S-E, M-E-T-A-V-R-S-E. Yeah. I was like, so that's, that's awesome. genius. Yeah. I was like, yes, we're going to do that. 
And then uh, we partnered with another friend of ours, Tal, who uh, was you know in the event space. And our original business model was to make an event space. Okay. And then uh, we pivoted that to do like corporate events and stuff like that. And then I realized, oh my goodness, the the real you know the real money is not in in doing one offs. It's in uh, it's in creating IP. Mm-hmm. And so we created, customizable. Yeah, just just IP solutions, right? So so we ended up doing a ton of different demos and you know and we've done probably three four hundred events over the last year and a half and we did everything from we've even done birthday parties we did you know corporate events we did marketing events we did sales events we just we decided to be everywhere there was vr so we created the vr market in toronto anyway that's insane and i looked at it as a three-phase prong so first phase is events, get people to try it because you'd go in a boardroom and there'd be 50 people. Nobody's ever tried VR. That's not scalable. You need to be able to do it, show hundreds of people at any given time. So events, we're getting paid to bring VR to people's events. Mm. So we'd get paid to do that. We'd show VR. And so we showed hundreds of people, thousands of people VR one at one a time. And then, uh, so that was phase one. Phase two was to then find clients that would want to do something in VR and create IP. And so the idea is we get a client, we figure out what they need. We work on it for them. We deliver it for them. But in the back end, whatever the tools we needed to make, mm-hmm. we would own that IP. So that's our business model. And so phase one was events. Phase two was marketing. And that's where we're at right now is the marketing events yeah. and marketing activations and things. So we created a VR photo booth. Uh, we've created some uh, web-based AR. Uh, we're doing some AR kit now, AR core stuff. So we're really focused on the marketing side. And then phase three is the enterprise side. Mm-hmm. How do we use this for training, for uh, warehouses? For education, that sort of thing, right. uh, and ultimately, over the next three years, we're going to be building a, you know, I, I don't want to say one platform because it's multiple platforms for different things. But we've actually got a, a metaverse, metaverse asset production portal. So now we've created this portal where clients can come and host their assets, and if they need to, you know, take a two D. Let's say, for example, you take a book. Mm-hmm. The book is naturally, you know, the print is two D. Well, we want to make it into a 3D render. You know, what do you have to do to make it 3D and take people's products and do that? So um, we've got this pipeline for doing that, and we can do it on scale now. So what we're realizing is that every time we take on a project, taking one project on is fine. Two, mm-hmm. it's okay. You can manage it. Three, you're like, oh, this is getting sketchy. And anything over that, the wheels come off because we didn't have a system for doing that. So we built this proto- protocol, and now we can scale it up. Well, one of the things in your story that I, I keep on hearing and I love is like pivoting. Yeah, you keep figuring out. It's not like you would know, you know, beforehand. But like nobody knew, nobody knew where VR is. And even now, yeah. like if you look at the VR landscape, nobody knows who's going to win. Is it going to be Oculus? Is it going to be HTC? Is it going to be Acer? So in the fall, in the next three months, you're going to have Acer, Asus, LG, Lenovo, Microsoft, and HP all coming out with their own VR headsets. Mm. Who's going to win? Is it going to be still Oculus and HTC? They're the only players now in Sony PlayStation. Like nobody knows. So rather than take these fairly big leaps of faith, we just kept it, you know, completely agnostic. You know, we're completely platform agnostic. We can pivot as things go, but we have a pretty good idea of what's going because we go to all the trade shows, we speak at them, we we kind of have some insider yeah. knowledge around what's coming, what's what coming people up. are working on. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, when companies come to us and they say, "Hey, we want to do this," it's like, okay. WebAR is great now, and for you know for the next six months, WebAR is it. But beyond that, WebAR is not going to be there because what's going to happen is ARKit and ARCore, which is Google and Apple, or Apple and Google, they're going to make their stuff work on web. Mm-hmm. So how much money do you want to invest in this technology that you know is going to be obsolete in six months? 
And so we have kind of the best business model that's flexible and allows us to move while generating IP that's going to be used in the future. Because you're nimble, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. What do you like most about uh, VR and AR? Like, what, what's, what's, what really draws you into it? What got me originally with VR was the immersive nature. The, the fact you put it on and you feel like you're there. So mm. one of the things that I see is, is the easiest path to using VR for any company is training. Say, for example, you're an electrical grid company and you, you need to train people on how to, how to you know, work on a giant transformer box, right? Mm. Well, training people on the transformer box, you got to have the transformer there. You got to you know, train them on it. And, you know, if it's a live transformer, there's the danger of that. And if it's not live, you got to figure out, you know, is it offline? You know, how much does it cost to have it offline? Is it actually one we brought in? How much does it cost to bring the people in? What if we just created a digital version of that, train the people on it? They think like they've trained on it. So one of the things that um, I saw recently and uh, some friends, we've made friends with these guys, but it's a company called ITI and they make a crane simulator. So it teaches you how to drive a crane. Yeah. And so you're driving this crane. A buddy of mine uh, from VR Scout, he was driving the crane in VR, trained on it for an hour, and it's gamified, so you have to you know, run the thing through them, you know, and, and you can't hit the pylons and everything, so you get points. After one hour, only one hour of training in VR, they walked him outside and put him on a real crane, and he was able to drive it no problem. And if you think about, you know, if I'm a pilot, I can do it. If I'm a surgeon, like yesterday, right? yeah, I just posted on my LinkedIn. And my LinkedIn is awesome, by the way. If Please add them on LinkedIn. Yeah, I already posted this on Instagram too. Amazing your LinkedIn. So yeah, <laughs> my, my LinkedIn is. Uh, I've been doing some social experiments, so you you'll see you'll see. I went from six thousand connections to eleven thousand five hundred in right. a month, about two months. And you're at fifteen now. Like it's incredible. Yeah, it's not. It's growing exponentially now. But anyway, um, yesterday I posted on LinkedIn. It was really cool this uh this game called iRacing, racing and it's a vr game where you're racing and you, yeah. you can use like a steering wheel that attaches to your desk there's this kid alex and he's a champion in this game he's like the world champion of racing in this game and it's right. it's the cars with the, the big wings on them they're the dirt cars yeah, yeah. Around. so he's he's the best in the world at the virtual game so they took him out of the virtual world put him in a real car and put him in a racetrack and said go race see how you do with like seasoned veterans. This is not like kids league. This is adult league. He went in there, 16 years old. He ended up uh, over the course of a weekend, never driven a car before. Went in on Friday, learned Saturday race, Sunday race, sixth overall out of 40, wow. 50 people. Oh, and, he had a, and he had a car that was 60 horsepower less than them. So if he had a car on par with them, they would he would have killed them. Jeez. So that's, I mean, doesn't that, so I want to bring up this point. He only trained in VR ever before, never touched a real car before. It came in sixth overall. So if you can be that proficient, UPS just announced they're going to be training all their drivers in in VR now. And I think like, you know, young drivers of Canada or, you know, some sort of driving school, why wouldn't you train people in VR where they can make mistakes and crash into things where there's no consequences? Mm -hmm. And at least to a certain level of proficiency before they go out into the real world. It's a controlled environment. I mean, yeah. that's really what it is. And you can put things in, right? You can pepper, right. you know, somebody walking out in front of them so that they scenarios. Can, yeah. Do you, I'm sure. And I, I know you got this question before, but if you watch black mirror, you all remember that, that episode wow. of VR. I actually watched it There's last night just to prepare a bit for this again. I just wanted to, to go back and I know it's a bit, you know, fictional and stuff. Does it scare you the fact that if this really becomes too advanced, right? I put on these goggles or I'm in an immersed space, whatever it is, the experience or like the, the fictional experience becomes so real that when I tune out of it, I don't know which, what's real anymore or what's not. So this is a, this is an ethical dilemma that people are, are asking. And, and the, the headset manufacturers and everybody working towards this 
is working towards that that fidelity where you can't decipher real from things. So uh, your eyes see it. Let's call it, you know, sixteen. Um, you know, right now we've got two K uh, headsets, right? Right. Your eyes, in order to be photorealistic, need to see at sixteen K equivalent each. That's crazy. Each. So we're and and you're talking like thousands of times yeah. computing power. So things like foveated rendering, where you use eye tracking. Apple just bought a company called SMI, which is the largest eye tracking company in the world. Mm. I just bought them outright, and now they have the best eye tracking in the world because when you wear a pair of glasses, what they're going to do is they're going to track where your eyes are looking. One, for the crazy idea that they want to know everything you're looking at, but the second thing is it will allow them to do what's called foveated rendering. And meaning if you look at something and you look just your periphery, it's actually a bit fuzzy. Mm. And so you really only see 5% in, in super high def. And then as you go out and out and out, it gets less and less and less. So mm. your periphery over here is really fuzzy. So as long as you render directly what you're looking at properly, mm -hmm. the rest of it can be a bit fuzzy. So it saves computer render times. Wow. So you wow. can imagine now, if I'm looking this way, right now I have to render the whole scene in super high resolution. So if I turn around, it's in, res in high resolution. But with foveated rendering, it's only focusing where I'm looking. So the processing power is only there. Mm. And it saves you know, thousands of uh, percent of computing power. So that's coming, and that's, that will allow us to, to make that kind of leap to photorealistic everything. Now, what's having photorealism without sound? Spatial sound is very important. You need to have that sound that matches. So say, for example, we're having a conversation. You talk to me, but your voice comes from over here. It's going to be awkward. I'm going to be like, what? Right. You're talking to me from here, but the sound's coming from over here. That doesn't, your brain just immediately goes, something's wrong. Right. It dismisses it. Like that. It dismisses it. It's, it's not real. It's it, not. They call it the uncanny valley. And basically what happens is as you approach photorealism, say, for example, you and I are avatars. And you've been scanned in as an avatar and you start super photorealistic, the glean on your nose, everything, your hair, facial hairs, everything is perfect. But your motions are a little off or your eyes kind of like, you know, they, they kind of do this a little bit. <laughs> a bit of lag. Or, the, or even just your breathing is a little bit different or your, your movements are a little bit off. Right. Once you reach this photorealism world, there's a thing called the Uncanny Valley where your brain just dismisses it as not real enough. Right. So, so that's why... People are sticking kind of cartoonish stuff, and that allows you to your brain to get over it. Your brain will accept cartoonish; it'll accept photoreal beyond that. But in that little gap, if you don't get it right, yeah, yeah. so nobody's perfected the avatar where it feels perfectly real. The, the avatars are kind of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, they have this weird move to them. They look at you like, oh. there's a company called Quantum Capture, and they, they're using AI now to kind of uh, fix that. But yeah. um, that's, so, so what's the future for you then? Like, I mean. I mean, not just for Metaverse, but obviously being an expert in this yeah. space, where, where do you see it in like 5, 10, you know, 15 years from now? So I actually, uh, I've been doing a talk called The World in 2037. And okay. What is our world going to look like in 2037 from the standpoint of employment? Okay. Uh, what happens when AI becomes better than all of us for things like middle management of, you know, companies like PwC and Deloitte yeah. when they have hundreds of thousands of, you know, analysts? What happens when AI becomes better at those and you don't have to pay them? A computer starts making better decisions more regularly than all of these people. And it doesn't complain. You know, it doesn't need a coffee. It doesn't need a coffee. It doesn't. You know, and people are worried, oh, you know, AI is going to replace, you know, super high-end jobs. Well, we'll just transfer everybody's jobs. Like transportation is a prime example. You know, truck drivers. Long-distance truck that job is going to be gone in five years. Self-driving. Every truck company is working on self-driving trucks. Uh, there's companies working on bolt-on kits that will make existing trucks self-driving. 
that technology is coming. That's 2.5% of the U.S. population. Mm. It's millions of jobs gone. So like, oh, we'll just teach them how to code. Okay, maybe an option. You know, 50-year-old truck driver, I'm not sure how much he wants to sit in front of a computer and code. But okay, let's assume we teach them all to code. What happens when the code starts to code itself? So we're in this weird 20-year world where in the next 20 years, you're going to have blockchain, IoT, AI, VR and AR, and all sorts of you know, bio, biomedical, uh, where you know, gene therapy and stuff like this, where we're living longer. The, the tax structures are not set up to do this. So right now, our governments tax the individual. You go to work, you get taxed. So what happens when those individuals, those jobs are gone on scale? You have to fundamentally change the tax structure to tax the corporations and give back to the people or else you have everybody who's unemployed and nobody buys anything, the economy stops. That's right. So I don't know what's going to happen in the next 20 years from that. Um, my goal is to create an education platform to teach kids how to be entrepreneurs. So a couple of years ago, uh, when my daughter was nine, she came up with this idea of creating sandals that leave a heart-shaped tan line on the top of your feet. Actually, right. it might even be a pair. Hold on. It's called Love Sandal. Super cool company, by the way. She was only like nine years old when she started. It's a box with no, uh, no shoes in it. Anyway. Yeah, so you can see the shoes there. Yeah. So anyway, she invented sandals that leave a heart-shaped tan line on your feet. And then you know, she created this, this whole, whole company. And so we helped her with it. And we helped her with the branding and the marketing and the sales and everything. And then one day we took her to the Toronto uh, Waterfront Festival. Yeah. And we had a little pop-up tent where she was selling shoes. And we invited her friends to help. And they were like, want to buy some shoes? Want to buy some? They were just the worst salespeople ever. And so I pulled them all aside. They were like 10-year-old kids, right? So I pulled them all aside and I said, okay, here's, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to say, hey, this is my daughter's, my, my friend Abby's company. She invented sales. leave a hardship tan line. There's two styles. There's the, the beach bum and the hippie chick. Which one do you like? Oh, I like these ones. Which color? They come in three colors. Okay, what size? And so step by step, and then once you have their size and their color and style, Put it down on the ground. Let them try it on. Get the other one. Let them try both on. When they have them on their feet, ask them how many pairs they want to buy. <laughs> like, and I taught these kids in like 15 minutes. I taught them this. And they went on to sell $3,000 worth of shoes in the next three hours. It was crazy. It was like, holy crap, we just created sales ninjas. And oh, and here was the key. We paid them $5 a pair for every pair they sold. For sure. And so I had this epiphany moment where I was like, oh, my God. Two things. One, we can teach kids. They, they will learn and they, they can do it right away. We can right. do some sales and marketing, anything that, that is beneficial to them long-term. The second thing is they're motivated by everything that we are. Money, praise, you know, success. Yeah, yeah. They're motivated by that like anybody else. And I thought, okay, well, what's the best way, the most universal way to motivate somebody to learn something? Pay them. Pay them for it. So I'm creating an education platform that not only rewards kids for learning, in money, but also points. Right. So they'll be able to, to gamify it. So as they get more points, they end up making more money. And as they you know go through this whole program, they actually end up getting paid to learn different things. That's really cool. So because I, I thought, and it's things like mentorship, positivity, gratitude, deep breathing, yoga, you know, the kind of personal success things that you need. Right. But then it's marketing, sales, financial planning, investing, um, mentorship like really digging into helping others and helping yourself helping others to help yourselves and so this is my my vision for the future and i realized that the best way to teach this on scale is going to be using technology Mm. and so when i lost my last company this was my vision i was like i want to make this education platform i realized that i'm I'm missing three things i'm missing the technology 
that we, we don't know what technology we need yet. So we're working towards that. We're missing the connections. So how do you build a really successful board of directors when you don't know that many people? So we need the connections and then we need the money, the cash. Sure. So Metaverse uh, was formed and in my brain is to, is giving all three of those. You know, we're developing tech every single day. We, we have now like ridiculous connections. We're working with, you know, fortune 100 companies. That's right. We're, you know, we're working directly with the top people at all these companies in different sectors, by the way. in different sectors. So we're mining. banking, mining, um, retail, retail for sure. We're doing a retail thing in, in October that'll be launched. Um, so really cool. Um, yeah, uh, all sorts of different things, automotive. And so, so it's building the brand around metaphors, right? Being yeah. a thought leader, positioning yourself in this space. Like exactly. the and, and imagine two years ago, I, w- I didn't know anything about VR. I mean, compared to other people, I went to all these conferences. I was there as an attendee watching, learning. I went to every single thing, made notes. And one of the fundamental things that I, I managed to do was I wrote the world's first white paper on VR for marketing. It was the VR for, for, for marketing white paper. And I released it and it got thousands of downloads. And I remember sitting in a meeting with the head of Vice Toronto. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, I wrote this white paper. I'll send it to you. She goes, oh, I already downloaded it and read it. And I was like, oh, man, that's <laughs> so cool. So uh, they never became a client. What happened with that? But um, but they it was just they have offices. In, yeah, in everyone. Yeah. yeah, they're uh, in Liberty. Liberty. Yeah. So um, anyway, we we just kept writing and writing and like because what I realized is that it's one thing to learn something. Yeah. But if you have to write about it, you really have to know it. You have to understand. And so I've been writing every single day now. Um, and that's you use really LinkedIn helped. a lot. I use LinkedIn. How, how important is social media for you? And I don't so, mean just like taking selfies, guys. I mean, no, no. Uh, social media is our only marketing. Uh, right now we're, we're gonna we actually have a plan to really scale our, our company but um right now we focused on our instagram is pretty badass it's fun right we instagram is meant to be fun it's fun photos <laughs> on there we we do our events we we do you know mm. we have fun with that uh facebook facebook's a closed loop it's really really hard to get reach without spending a lot of money so we we spent a bit of money we did a, a couple tests and it really wasn't fruitful and then I started this experiment on LinkedIn uh, where I write every single day. And um, I found out that it penalizes you for, for putting in phone stuff. So just text, only text. And if you it even, LinkedIn even penalizes you for using their own publishing platform. Yeah. So if you use the LinkedIn article Articles, platform, yeah. action is if you just write, an, write a post. So they push up the traffic is what you're saying. Almost yeah. Like so like, you know, some of one of my posts uh, back a month ago got 500,000 views. That's right. You're me. And then the next post when I put links in, it got like 500 views. Mm. And so I've been doing these A-B tests and I've got a, a rule list around that. And I can share that with you as well. But, um, but, but, but the fundamental thing with LinkedIn is that you're storytelling, right? Yeah. We're talking about this. Yeah. It's not like you're product pushing. Hey guys, look at Metaverse. But you're like, no, like, look, this experience, here's the lesson I've learned over time. People are like, who is this guy? Like, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm writing about things that happen. So, for example, my post the other day was, okay, last night we took the wall off our VR photo booth and we made videos out of it. You know, it had this kind of this uh, feature of that if you take the one wall off a cube, room, then you can film it. And so we, you know, we brought in cameras and lights and filmed our, our pitch deck in VR in the green screen room that we created. And so it just had this side effect. So I've been writing okay, we learned this lesson. We went to this meeting and that, yeah, this meeting went sideways for this, this, and this. Here's what I learned. Or we did this and here's what I learned. Here, I, I'm trying to give life lessons, but really what I'm doing, mm-hmm. and here's my, my long term. I'm going to keep doing this for the next three years. So in 2020, we're going to launch the education platform. Yeah. So every time I write an article or, or just a post in LinkedIn, I'm going to go back and take that and it's going to become the foundation for a book. 
Very cool. So not only will the book have the lessons that you can read, but it also has the metrics and comments. Oh, so sweet. now you have, okay, this, this <laughs> post here got, uh, you know, 17 views, got uh, 120 likes and 20 comments. And here's the top three comments. Mm. And so that'll be a book and you can learn what works, what doesn't work. And we can, you know, break it down into that. So that is going to become a book. Now, the other thing that's super smart that is in the background that I, I never told anybody, I've never said anything that every time I post these lessons, these little life lessons, like one of the things I put is uh, that I have this theory is only tens, only surround yourself with people who are tens mm. and you know, you be, become successful that way. When I posted that, it got a lot of negative, uh, like a lot of negative comments like, Hey, you know, what about people who are, you know, are going through some tough times. And, and so it's made me rethink that rule. That rule. So what I'm doing is I'm testing all the rules and lessons for the unlimited awesome Academy. Very so cool. this is my test bed <laughs> for my future company. That's insane, man. How yeah. you're sort of like just joining everything together. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to ask you, on before we sort of uh, leave this off, and this is probably the most critical for people watching this, yeah. you know, young entrepreneurs, professionals, students. You spoke about that 10 rule, right? 10 out of 10. What makes someone great in your eyes? If you were hiring someone, what, what do you look for? Uh, what's that advice you give to someone watching this right now uh, to be in your shoes, maybe in a different context, yeah. but to be successful? There's no, no one thing, unfortunately. Um, and one of the things that is really that I've noticed and that I've kind of taken on is that consistency is better. Like consistency is better than any one thing. So doing something every day, trying to get better a little bit every single day. I, you know, I think in, in Japanese they call it Kaizen where you're just Kaizen, constantly yeah. improving. There's really no secret for it. I read a lot. Um, if you turn the, yeah, if you yeah. turn this around, you can see my crazy book collection over there and all my uh, lanyards from different events and stuff. Sorry about that. <laughs> Hurt your ears. No. Um, so yeah, we, um, I read a lot. I read about four hours a day. Uh, and really? then I write, that's really cool. I write about an hour a day. So that's like five hours on my day where I'm just learning and then consuming, writing, uh, consuming and writing. So yeah. Yeah. almost, I would say 80% of that right now is trying to keep up with the VR news. So I, I uh, whatever it is you want to learn, the, the fastest way that I've figured out right now, let's like say you want to learn about blockchain, go figure out what the best blockchain newsletter is. And the one I found right now is called Cointelegraph. Mm-hmm. And you sign up for the newsletter every day you get, you know, thing. And you, you know, maybe there's 10 articles every day and you scan through the one that's interesting to you that maybe it's blockchain and education. I pull that up and I read it and I'm like, okay, it has points that I want or it doesn't. And then I keep a, a folder. Uh, of, like for example, the unlimited awesome, I have a folder with just education. So it's like, okay, this guy's working on blockchain and education. I grab that link, throw it in there for the later, you know, I don't need it right now, but I may need it later. Mm. So I've been keeping this. And one of the things that I did, which was really cool is I kept track of all the different business use cases for the last two years that have been publicized. So I have a ridiculous library of all the business use cases of VR and AR. And so I wrote an article called 109 Ways Businesses Are Using VR and AR Right Now. That article turned into a keynote, and now the keynote, I'm doing it on different talks around the world. Wow. Um, yeah, so, and, and it's always new because, you know, I keep it by uh, chronographic, uh, chronological order. So when I go to do the next 109 Ways talk, mm-hmm. it won't be the same as the last one because there's new stuff that came on a lot. And so one of the fastest ways to learn about any field is to set up Google alerts for the, yeah, the keywords. Awesome. So uh, Google alerts um, allows you to, uh, to get key information. And I have virtual reality, augmented reality, and metaverse set up. Right. So every day I get, okay, virtual reality, here's 
a dozen articles. Yeah. And I just scan through. Like if it's if it's anything to do with gaming or adult content or you know uh, kids stuff, any anything that's not relevant to what I'm interested in, I just scan through it. Nothing, 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 nothing. Oh, there is one. There's a new headset that you know maybe use. I, I flip it open, I read it, I put it, and then we have a Slack channel of interesting reads. So I go through all the the Google alerts. Pick the stuff that's interesting, drop it into our, our interesting reads so the rest of the team can share it. Um, but now we have like a really great database one. database of, of knowledge. And uh, and every time I see something really cool that's like, wow, this is game changing, I email the guys who did it. Because typically the people making the really cool stuff, it's one and two person teams. Mm. They're working their asses off. And there's very little, even though they make something really cool and it gets a million views, very few people reach out to them and say, hey man, that was really cool. Like keep going. I don't know why we just, you know, we as a society, we click like, but we don't do anything past that. But I've reached out to all these guys and said, Hey, you know, you guys are doing amazing work. Let's stay in touch. And I've been doing that since day one. So I've managed to build a really amazing network of people. And then recently uh, at the beginning of this year, we started a partner portal. So uh, basically it's metaverse.com slash partners. Okay. And it allows people that are making cool stuff to share the stuff with us. And that way we can now, share with our customers. Mm. So, you know, if we're meeting with an automotive customer and then we've got, here's four, four things in automotive that we can show them. We show them that they go, this is amazing. It's great. And then we don't have to recreate that. You know, it's already done. We don't have to, we don't want to make every single thing. We're, we're consultancy. We, our job is to know what exists, Mm. what doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist and they need it, we can, you know, maybe take a bit of this and a bit of this, put it together and make what they need. Um, because there's no point in reinventing the wheel every single time you want to do this. Right. You know, the, the 360 camera technology has been, been sorted. Why would you try to start again? And why would we go and, you know, two years ago we were printing 3D camera rigs, putting GoPros in them. And it's crazy. The, uh, I can't even tell you. We were sitting with tweezers trying to pick out the SD cards. It came along. Ah! <laughs> it was the worst. That's so. awesome. And I love the advice. Look, I, I guess, I mean, you guys can see it. Hustle. This guy is a hustler. He's super passionate too. I mean, We've been talking like this at this energy level for about two, three hours now. Uh, I can't thank you enough, Alan. Oh, if there's you. one thing I'm going to end this off, and I told you this, this guy is like the Elon Musk of VR. That, 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 that's how I can phrase it. Wow. Uh, and it's some big shoes to fill there. You're going to make huge impacts, man. And I'm, I'm super glad I, I, you know, I could do this early on with you. And yeah. thank All you, the man. best, dude. Thank you, man. Keep rocking. Thanks, guys. Peace, guys.